All right. Well, if you're a guest with us this morning, thank you for being here. We are in a sermon series this summer that we called Skeptic, and we're trying to address some of the main objections that non-believers have to the Christian faith and try to answer those. And this morning, we have definitely picked a doozy. It is one that is very common. You've probably heard it multiple times. And it's the second to last of our objections that we're going to be dealing with. And the objection is that Christians are all hypocrites. This certainly was the case for Mahatma Gandhi, who believed this. You have certainly heard of Gandhi and his work in India and his his wonderful example in many ways of caring for the poor and the destitute of India. He was called a friend of the lower class. Those who were labeled untouchables in Indian society were given the name by him, children of God. And he cared relentlessly for those who were often overlooked in Indian culture. And when asked why he rode the third class train, which was the least class train in India, where the poor and the farm animals would often travel, he said, because there's no fourth class. Rather than avoiding leprosy, he personally bathed and bandaged patients who had it. He would not throw away a pencil until it was used completely, all the way, out of respect for the people who made it. When asked how far he would go to love his enemies, he replies that if an atom bomb was dropped on India, he would look up and the first thing he would do is pray for the pilot. According to Gandhi, his life was inspired first and foremost by the example of Jesus, yet he never seriously considered becoming a Christian. When asked why, he said, quote, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike Christ. So it was not because of Christ that he didn't become a Christian, it was because of Christians that he didn't become a Christian. As he observed Christians in Europe, During the time he was living, he saw racism and self-righteousness instead of love by those who claimed to be Christians. Once he was asked to leave a church service because he was not white and he was denied rooms and tables in Christian, quote, Christian-owned hotels and restaurants because he was a Hindu. Unless we think Gandhi would be alone in calling Christians hypocrites, the complete opposite end of the spectrum... Anton LaVey, the founder of the Church of Satan and the author of the Satanic Bible, attributes his philosophical origin to his early exposure to Christian hypocrisy. While playing for traveling carnivals and tent revival meetings, he watched it play out every weekend. He said, quote, on Saturday night, I would see men lusting after half-naked girls dancing at the carnival. And on Sunday morning, when I was playing organ for a tent revival evangelist, At the other end of the parking lot, I would see these same men sitting in the pews with their wives and children, asking God to forgive them and purge them of their carnal desires. And the next Saturday, they'd be back at the carnival or some other place of indulgence, end quote. So, he said, that can't be true. And he started the Church of Satan. All because of Christian hypocrisy. Lest we think this is just some ancient thing that Anton LaVey or Gandhi dealt with. This is a reality in our own community. A business leader in our own community just a couple of months ago wrote the following on his website. He said, don't want no church people around here. Now that I've got your attention, allow me to explain. I don't want to overstate this, so let me put it this way. 
church people are generally the worst people in the world. I was reminded of how awful some some church people were the other day by a customer, a church person, who acted in a most uncharitable nature when they didn't get what they wanted. They were generally small, petty, and rude. When it happened, I had a flashback of sorts to all the other church people I've dealt with over the years. Now, I'm no Bible scholar myself, but I was quick to think of the parable of the Good Samaritan, the priest and the Levite, both church people, right? Passed by the downtrodden man on the road and the non-church person, the Samaritan, helped the injured man by giving of his time and treasure to save his life. Don't think me overly pious. I'm a sinner praying for salvation alongside the rest of humanity. I'm just a man who's done a good bit of business with priests and preachers. And I have found most of them to be more like the priest or Levite in the parable above. This has led to the creation of a Twitter account and a Facebook page called Christian Hypocrisy where the mission of the Facebook page is, quote, dedicated to pointing out the hypocrisies taught in mainstream Christianity. And they are all too zealous to point out those uh, those things. This has also led to a famous T-shirt, which has on it imprinted, Jesus, save me from your followers. This is our reputation. One of hypocrisy and duplicity and fakeness. Well, I got three points I want to make this morning about this objection. And here's the first one. Number one, Christians, we should be offended by hypocrisy because Jesus hates it. We should be offended by hypocrisy because Jesus hates it. This is one objection where we can agree. We can agree with those who would say that Christians are hypocrites. We would say, Yes, in some sense, Christians are hypocrites. Jesus had a reputation for being a friend of sinners, but he had nothing but disdain for those who would call themselves followers of God and yet by their actions denied such followership. Especially among the religiously self-righteous variety. In all the Gospels, there is nothing quite like the vehemence and passion of language that we find from Jesus when he is confronting hypocrisy. Matthew 23, which we'll dive into in a more deeper detail when we get to it later in the fall. We'll be picking up our Gospel of Matthew sermon series in just a couple of weeks. But it's safe to say from just a cursory look at this chapter that Jesus hates hypocrisy. He hates hypocrisy. In fact, let me just point out to you three characteristics of a hypocrite, so we're all on the same page about what hypocrisy actually is, because I don't think it's readily defined, and pe- people can assume different things when they talk about hypocrisy. But here's how Jesus talks about it. First of all, hypocrisy is evident when the words of a person are elevated over the actions of a person. In other words, there's inconsistency between what they say and how they live. Notice, What Jesus says at the beginning of Matthew chapter 23 said, Then Jesus said to the crowds and the disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, sit on Moses' seat. They have a place of great preeminence and prestige. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach, but do not practice. You want to know where we got the phrase, practice what you preach? Jesus said it. Verse 4, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. 
So they'll say a lot of things that they expect of others, but they won't do the things that they expect of others. They expect others to do the things they say, and they're not willing to do the things that they preach. That's the elevation of words over actions, and that's hypocrisy. A second evidence of hypocrisy is the elevation of the external, the outward, over the internal. Notice what Jesus says in verse 5. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries, that is what they wore on the outside of their garments, broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Skip down to verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and the outside may also be clean. So a second evidence of hypocrisy is concern about what people think of you over what the internal reality is. I mean, these were the religious leaders. They wore certain kinds of clothing. They loved the place of honor. They loved being greeted and being called rabbi. They loved all these accolades that they got from being the religious elite. But internally, they were wicked. They were, according to Jesus, full of all kinds of uncleanness. And while the outside of the cup looked pretty good, the inside of the cup was full of decay. And that's hypocrisy. A third evidence of hypocrisy is the elevation of the minors over the majors. Verse 23 and 24. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. Now that is uh, uh, Jesus pointing out how fastidious and careful they were in their tithing. They would tithe down to various small things that you wouldn't even think of tithing on. And they would tithe on that. You tithe mint and dill and cumin and neglect the weightier matters of the law. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. Those you ought to have done, these you ought to have done, namely tithing, without neglecting the others, namely justice, mercy and faithfulness. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. So they focused on all the, 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 the more minor things, like being faithful in your giving, and neglecting being a transformed person. A person who loves mercy and faithfulness and justice. Brothers and sisters, when we see such hypocrisy in the church or in ourselves, we should be offended by it. Because Jesus is offended by it. We shouldn't be offended merely by what we see in others, the hypocrisy that we see in others, but we should be most offended by the hypocrisy that all too often resides in ourselves. We too can be guilty of words over actions. We too can be guilty over external above the internal. We too can be guilty of minoring or majoring on the minors and not majoring on the majors. So this is one area that we should be able to say with Jesus, amen, and with the culture, rightly understood, amen. We should be offended by hypocrisy because Jesus hates it. Point number two, we shouldn't be surprised by hypocrisy because Jesus expects it. We shouldn't be surprised by hypocrisy because Jesus expects it. Clearly, he expected it here in Matthew chapter 23. This is why he's pointing it out. He expected that among certain people who called themselves followers of God, they may not actually be fathers, followers of God. 
Do you believe that not, that, that, that not, that just because there is a profession, that that necessitates possession? See, our culture seems to think that just because someone says they are something, that means they are something. Jesus doesn't make that assumption. People can say they are a Christian and not be a Christian. And sometimes the hypocrisy that gets leveled at the Christian church is just a non-believer calling out another non-believer who merely professes Christianity. And that is the truest evidence of hypocrisy, no doubt. A Christian who would carry the name of Christian but not be a Christian? Not everyone who claims to be a Christian is truly a Christian. Lots of bad things are done in the name of Jesus by those who are not Christians at all. It's unfortunate but true that Christianity often inherits the reputation of false Christians. Jesus had to live under that. He had to live under the reality of who he was being associated with. However, there is a distinction that we have to keep in mind. And it's an important distinction. Hypocrisy and sin are not the same thing. Now, don't get me wrong. Hypocrisy is a sin. But not all sin is hypocrisy. If someone says, imagine hearing this. Surely, maybe some of you have heard such a thing from from an, an unbeliever. You know, I know someone who goes to church every Sunday. In fact... They're an elder in the church. They're a deacon in the church. And I see them do A, B, and C during the week. And you respond, you mean you see them sin? Now, if this man who was living in this world sinless, which is not possible, but if he claimed not to be a sinner and you saw him sin then he'd be guilty of hypocrisy. See, the hypocrisy is only one sin among many. In fact, for a Christian, to sin does not make that person a hypocrite. The only organization on the planet where you are required to be a sinner to join it is the Christian church. Now, if the complaint was the church is full of sinners, that would be an accurate evaluation. But hypocrisy at its essence is fraud. It's pretending to be something you're not. It's wearing a mask like the Pharisees were doing. But Christians, we don't wear a mask. The fundamental thing that we carry with us all the time is the reality that we're sinners. That's what it means to be a Christian, first and foremost, is to profess and to own the reality that you are a sinful person who is wicked to the core by nature. If the church claimed to be an organization of perfect people, then the claim would be hypocritical. But the church proclaims this, we are rotten to the core and Jesus is our righteousness Anyone else who feels this way is welcome to join us and get in on this. 
A Christian does not claim to be sinless. We are only hypocrites when we sin and don't admit it. And we're going to talk about that later because that's one of the reasons we've earned the charge of hypocrisy. When we've sinned, we haven't owned it. I mean, this is written large all across the Bible that we are profoundly sinful and will continue to be until the day we die. Proverbs 20 verse 9 says, Who can say, I have made my heart pure, I am clean from my sin? And that goes for the person who's accusing Christians of being hypocrites too. Ecclesiastes 7.20, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. 1 Kings 8.46, There is no one who does not sin. I mean, we see this, this inconsistency in the life of God's people all throughout the Bible. Inconsistency in a person's life is not the same thing as being a hypocrite. Moses was inconsistent. He doubted and resisted God's call. Jacob was inconsistent. He was a liar. David was inconsistent. He was an adulterer and murderer. Solomon was inconsistent. He was a womanizer. Thomas was inconsistent. Come to the New Testament because of his unbelief. Peter was a racist. The Corinthians. Let me just read you their job or their, 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 you know, resume. Here we go. They judged one another. They created major divisions over minor doctrines. They committed adultery. They filed lawsuits against one another. They seemed they had more divorces than healthy marriages. They paraded their Christian liberty before those with a sensitive conscience. And they slighted the poor, disadvantaged, and disabled in their midst. And Paul wrote to him and told him he loved him and called him saints. As strange as it may sound, it is the inconsistency of Christians in the Bible that sometimes encourages me more than anything. It reminds me that God's relentless grip on me, not my relentless grip on God, is what keeps me in his love. It reminds me that there's there's hope for prostitutes and crooks and adulterers and racists and elitists and murderers and terrible husbands and coveters. If there's hope for them, there's hope for me. So I would say to an unbeliever who is really bothered by... This idea that Christians are hypocrites. And I would say, are Christians hypocrites in some sense? You bet. Have those who have professed to be Christians caused a permanent stain on history and therefore tainted the gospel? For sure. Are you bound to face a few or several Christians in your life who will make you want to do anything but become a Christian? Probably. But let me follow up with these questions. Are non-Christians hypocrites? Have non-Christians caused a permanent stain on history? Are there non-Christians today who make not believing in Christianity unattractive? Have you kept your own moral standard? Everyone has a moral standard of being loving. Even a person who doesn't claim to be a Christian. But have you always been loving? The only people who call hypocrites hypocrites are hypocrites. When it comes to being screw-ups, we're all in the same boat, gang. Christians and non-Christians. If you find a church that's perfect, whatever you do, don't join it. Don't join it. 
It'll become imperfect. You'll ruin it. And I will too. Yes, the church is broken. It's filled with shattered people who are being mended by the king. Good news, there's always room for one more. So as a fellow hypocrite, I would say then, why would you reject Christianity because of Christian hypocrisy? If Christ is the center of Christianity, why would a person reject Christ because of the inconsistency or flat-out hypocrisy? Wholesale, full-blown hypocrisy of those who claim to be his followers. While it is perfectly illegitimate to have reservations about any belief system that does not result in transformation of its followers, we should evaluate Jesus on his own merits rather than the flaws of his followers. Far from being a reason to reject Jesus, our natural tendency to be hypocritical reveals our need for Jesus. When you die and stand before Jesus to give an account for your life and what and why you did not rely on his life and his death for the forgiveness of your own hypocrisy, how do you think this line is going to work with him because some of your followers were hypocrites? How's that going to fly on the day of judgment? And here's here's the reality, brothers and sisters. The The charge that the church is full of hypocrites is slander. It's slander. There may be hypocrites in the church, and there are. But that doesn't mean the church is full of them. Christians are, by and large, significantly different from many of the negative caricatures portrayed in the media, in comedy, and on film. Christians are not like Sheldon's mom on Big Bang Theory. She's the quintessential Texas external Christian pointing out the flaws of the morality of everybody around her. Most Christians are not like Ned Flanders on The Simpsons. Christianity doesn't teach that people are basically good and just need a little moral improvement. If that were the case, the charge of hypocrisy could be leveled at us a lot more and with more legitimacy. I mean, you're a good person. Why aren't you getting better? You should be almost perfect by now. You claim to be a Christian. That's not what Christianity teaches about human nature. Christianity teaches that all people, even the outwardly moral before God, are wicked, vile, ruthless, God-hating people to the core and need to be resurrected to spiritual life. Christianity is not about making good people better. It's about making dead people alive. We should be, we should marvel that a person who was once dead in sin is a good, decent person at any level. As the saying goes, the church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. As with any hospital, we should expect to see some signs of increasing health. For the gospel does make a difference in the way people live. But again, if you walked into a hospital and saw the state of a particular patient, you couldn't tell how well the treatment is working unless you knew how sick the patient was before they came into the hospital. So be careful when you start making judgments about Christians you may meet. You just don't know how sick they were before you got to know them. Imagine how sick and desperate we were. Because we were. 
I mean, even secular unbelievers are recognizing how overblown the, the phrase, all Christians are hypocrites, really is. Let me just give you two examples. One example comes from the New York Times, a place where you don't normally find people going to bat for Christianity. But in this case, you see it. Nicholas Kristof, journalist for the New York Times, wrote the following observations about evangelical Christians. He said, quote, Some self-appointed evangelical leaders seem homophobic, and many who claim to be pro-life seem little concerned with human life post-uterus. Those are the preachers who want headlines and disdain. But in reporting on poverty, disease, and oppression, I've seen so many others. Evangelicals are disproportionately likely to donate 10% of their income to charity. More important, go to the front lines, at home or abroad, in the battles against hunger, malaria, prison rape, obstetric fistula, human trafficking, and genocide, and some of the bravest people you meet are evangelical Christians who truly live their faith. Now, I'm not particularly religious myself, Christoph says, but I stand in awe of those I've seen risking their lives in this way, and it sickens me to see that faith mocked at New York cocktail parties. End quote. They recognize it. People who have been around the world and rub shoulders with those who are ministering to the most marginal, the most poor, the most destitute. You meet them, they're likely Christians. Not exclusively, but oftentimes. So in spite of the inconsistencies of people that we see in the Bible, like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Peter and Paul and me, I'm not in the Bible, but if I was, I'd be inconsistent. No other religion, philosophy, or person has inspired self-donating love and sacrificial service more than a vital living faith in Jesus Christ and the power of his death and resurrection. It is through imperfect Christians that scores of life-giving contributions have left the world better, not worse, and about which even Gandhi might be inspired. Most of us, here's the reality, brothers and sisters, most of us, and you know this, we are our own worst critics. It's true. Though we are at times offensive and insensitive, and Jesus could easily sue us for defamation of character if he wanted to, most of us want our lives to be a demonstration of who Jesus is and what he's really like. That's what true Christians desperately want. We grieve and lament when we fail to live up to the example of our Savior. I told you I'd give you a second example of an unbeliever who recognizes the gross overstatement that all Christians are hypocrites. Let me give you another one. Ira Glass from This American Life, another non-Christian, says the following, whose balanced and kind-hearted perspective I really appreciate. What Christians really are is not being captured by the press. I feel that Christians are really horribly covered by the media. And there came a point early on in the show, the show that they host called This American Life, that I just noticed that the way that Christians are portrayed in movies and on television is almost always as these crazy people. Whereas the Christians in my life were all incredibly wonderful and thoughtful and had very ambiguous, complicated feelings in their beliefs and seemed to be totally generous and kind-hearted, totally open to a lot of different kind of people in their lives, end quote. So the reality is, is that even... Unbelievers recognize that the claim that Christians are hypocritical is pretty overblown. But nonetheless, we shouldn't be surprised by it because we're sinners after all. And Jesus told us that we are. Point number three. We've seen that we must hate hypocrisy 
because Jesus hates it. We must be offended by it. We shouldn't be okay with it in ourselves, especially. We shouldn't be surprised by it. But also, number three, brothers and sisters, we must be committed to to non-hypocrisy because Jesus demands it. First Peter chapter two, verse one, Peter writes, apostle of Jesus Christ. So put away talking to Christians to us this morning, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Hypocrisy is one of those things we need to be putting away in our lives. In fact, one of the best ways to do that, to start with, if there's some people in your life that have a bad impression of Christianity because of your life, one of the best things you could do is go apologize to them. That's what Robert Cunningham did. A good friend of mine from Murray State University, we were friends. He now pastors in Lexington, Kentucky at Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church. And a few months ago, he was asked to begin writing a monthly column in the opinion section for the Lexington Herald Leader. And he thought, first of all, I'm going to write this, you know, scathing cultural critique about all the ways culture is departing from historic Christianity and reaping the benefits of it. But you know what he did? He wrote an apology. Here's what he said. The Times of London once asked prominent thinkers of the day to submit a response to the question, what's wrong with the world? Christian apologist G.K. Chesterton offered the following. Dear sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. With Christianity, repentance always precedes reproof. That's our critique. That our, that, that is, our critique is fiercely inward before it ever looks outward. So before I offer my evangelical opinion to the broader culture, I'd like to offer an evangelical apology to the broader culture, an apology that's long overdue. Here's what he apologizes for. He says, I'm sorry that we have obsessed over the sexual practices of of the culture while ignoring the epidemic of these same practices in our own churches. I'm sorry that we have obsessed over the redefinition of marriage while ourselves redefining marriage to make room for the widespread divorces in our churches. I'm sorry that we've obsessed over America's greed and materialism while the love of money is alive and flourishing in our churches. I'm sorry that we've obsessed over cherry-picked issues of injustice while ignoring the ones we don't want to think about. I'm sorry that we have viewed culture as an opponent to be defeated rather than a neighbor to be loved. I'm sorry that the warmth and welcome we found in our Savior too often is not what you found in our churches. I'm sorry that we who cling to the promises of God's mercy can be so merciless sometimes. I'm sorry that in an attempt to make our churches more relevant, we have traded our rich, transcendent identity for a cheap imitation of the world you know. I'm sorry that our protest has been more fervent than our prayers. I'm sorry for giving shallow answers to your deepest questions. I'm sorry for throwing simplistic platitudes at your complex struggles. And perhaps most of all, I'm sorry that this might be the first time you've ever heard a Christian say, I'm sorry. What would it do to a community if everyone led first with an apology rather than an opinion? I believe that nothing changes a home, friendship, neighborhood, workplace, or even a city more than the way of contrition. So I'll get us started. Dear Lexington, I'm sorry. Sincerely yours, Robert Cunningham. And, you know, he got all kinds of heat for that. Insincere. Look at this Christian acting like he's real sincere and all this stuff. I mean, I read... The comments, I'm like, man, you can't win for losing, can you? But that doesn't mistake that what he did was right. 
that he believed the gospel deep enough to apologize. Even for sins he wasn't even responsible for. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that one of the first signs of Christian maturity was a frustration with the hypocrisy of the church. But he quickly went on to say that the next sign of growth was recognizing that the same hypocrisy in the church is present in you. Christian, brother and sister in Christ, we have the freedom to own and be honest about our sins, shortcomings, and inconsistencies. This is what the death of Jesus is all about. When we pretend and behave like we haven't sinned when we have, we don't commend the gospel. We're anti-Christian in our behavior. Because you have been forgiven through the death of Jesus for all of your past, present, and future failures, being found lacking is no longer a threat. It's only a perceived one. The more that I recognize that because of Jesus, I will never have to face God's judgment, the more I can allow my hypocrisy to be brought into the light by God and by others. I can also invite God and others to help me forsake my hypocrisy and grow into the person that God has created me to be. So that's where we should start. We should start with the fact that because of the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ for us and for our sin, we are free to take the mask off. And when we blow it, we can own it. And when we blow it bad... We can own it. When we say, when another person points out the inconsistency of our Christian faith, we can say, brother, sister, I'm sorry, but you don't know the half of it. You don't know the half of it. I want to tell you what I was like 5, 6, 10, 15 years ago and what Jesus has done for my soul and why I'm still relying upon him. And while I will never get to a point where I will... Stop relying upon him. I hate the sin that I commit, but I'm glad that I have a Savior who died for it. And the good thing is that you can have him too, if you're not too good for him. And we can we can own our sin before people. What would create what would create a greater saltiness in the church than that in these days? Just to be able to own our imperfection, own our weakness, and call it what it is. Call the lie the lie. Call the disingenuous disingenuineness. Call the hypocrisy hypocrisy. Call it what it is and own it and believe the gospel deep enough to talk about it. So how can we do that? How can we get more comfortable, not with being, not with our remaining hypocrisy, but comfortable enough to own it when we see it in ourselves. We never want to become complacent toward that which Jesus hates and which we he calls us and commands us and demands us to put off. But how can we who are recovering hypocrites become more like Jesus? Well, I'm going to give us three of them. We're going to look at a few texts. So if you have a Bible, please go with me there. Let's first go first of all to Galatians chapter 5. Here's what we need, first of all, to grow. And none of these is going to be earth-shattering. It's just Christianity 101. Galatians chapter 5, verses 20 through 24. 
But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. That's what we want to be, right? We want to be loving. We want to be joyful. We want to be peacemakers. We want to be patient with people. We want to be kind, good, faithful, gentle, self-control. We want all of that. How do we get there? The fruit of the Spirit is love. So this is a product of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, not a product of something that we, uh, some sort of self-generated resolution. It's a product of the Spirit bearing fruit in us and through us. So how do we get that? Look at verses 24 and 25. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Which means when we see things that are not loving, that are not joyful, that are not peaceful, that are not patient, that are not kind, good, gentle, all the non-fruit, the fruit of the flesh, when we see that, we hate it and we say, that's not, that's not who I am. That's not who I am. I am a new creation in Christ. I belong to another. I belong to Jesus. I have crucified through Christ's death on the cross. I have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Paul said it in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's our identity now. He says in verse 25, we live by the Spirit. Let us keep in step with the Spirit. So we yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit through prayer and trustful dependence on him. We say, God, by nature, I am prone to remaining hypocrisy. And I need you to more and more, by the power of your spirit, begin to set me free from that. Help me. May your spirit be at work in me to transform me. And may I learn to live in step with him, keep in step with him, yield to him. And may your fruit be born in my life in an ever-increasing, non-perfect way, but a real way. So we need, we need to belong to Jesus. We need to, we need to realize that this, this fix isn't going to come from trying harder and doing more. It's going to come from going to Jesus Christ again, over and over again. We cling to Christ, not just for justification, but for sanctification. We cling to him. And rely on him and cry out to him and call to him and pray to him and seek him to be conformed to him. Secondly, besides going to Christ and seeking to bear the fruit of the spirit in a very similar way, we need to go to him for ongoing washing and cleansing. First Corinthians chapter six describes what happened to us at the beginning of our Christian life when we were saved and redeemed. Notice what the Christians Background was like, do you not know that the unrighteous will not? This is chapter 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Members of the church at Corinth, Christians, saints. If they had been ransomed out of that background, any progress would be warrant for great praise to God. But, he says, you were washed, 
You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Brothers and sisters, we've been washed of hypocrisy. We've been sanctified. We've been justified in the name of Jesus Christ. We are not what we were. It says such were some of you. Not such are some of you. Such were. Which indicates a radical change has taken place. We have been moved out of the kingdom of darkness, to quote Colossians, into the kingdom of God's Son. And we've been made a new creation in Christ Jesus. And so therefore, the old hypocrisy just clings to us. But we have put all that aside, and therefore, we can fight it. And here's, here's the real key. We can know all that, right? That's good theology. I mean, we can know that, yeah, I need the fruit of the Spirit in my life, and yeah, I know I, I don't have it as much as I, I need to, and I, yeah, I know that I've been crucified with Christ, and I know I've been justified, and I know I've been washed, and I know I've been sanctified. So you can know all that and and not be a growing and changing and transformed person because it's not the knowledge of the things of God that transforms a person only. <clears throat> It's closeness to the person of God that changes a person. And that's why we see in Acts chapter 4, verses 13, verse 13, the testimony that is given about these apostles and why they were transformed. Familiar text, but an important one. Now, when they saw the boldness, Peter and John preaching, wide open, Full out for Christ. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. Why were they astonished? Because they were behaving in a transformed way. They shouldn't be preaching like that. Those guys don't know anything. They shouldn't be that bold. They're just commoners. Who do they think they are? What did they attribute it to? It says in verse 13, they recognized that they had been with Jesus. That's where the transformation comes from. Being with him. Communion with him. There is no substitute for it. You can't go to enough classes. You can't read enough books. You can't learn enough good doctrine. Nothing will transform you. you got to be with Christ. And it's by being with Christ that bullies become kind. And elitists become approachable. And adulterers become pure. And takers become givers. And narcissists become servants. And haters become lovers. And adversaries become advocates. And sinners become saintly. And hypocrites become winsome. Even as they continue to wrestle with their own shortcomings. The more we sit at the feet of Jesus, consider his loveliness, take in his truth, breathe in his spirit, live in community with his people, celebrate his sacraments, and follow him in his mission, the more his aroma will be discernible to us, in us, and to those around us. Well, I have a dream. Martin Luther King Jr. had one. I have one, too. And my dream coincides with the dream that Scott Sauls has. Scott is a pastor in Nashville, and he writes the following. And this is a dream I share with him, and with this I close. So, worship team, you can begin to make your way forward. I dream of a day 
Scott Saul says, hopefully soon, when Gandhi sympathizers will begin saying, I like your Christ and I like your Christians. Not because we Christians have ceased to be in some manner hypocritical, but because we have become increasingly endearing in and honest about our remaining hypocrisy. There is something incredibly attractive and inviting about people who stop pointing fingers and posing and pretending to be totally good and totally right and instead start taking themselves less seriously and openly and freely admit that they are not what they yet what they should be. I am eager for the Christian story to put a spotlight on the same thing that the biblical story does, that Jesus is quite fond of humbled hypocrites and he loves to save humbled hypocrites from themselves. Let's pray. Father, thank you for looking at us as sinners in all of our hypocrisy and sending us Jesus, the one who was never a hypocrite. There was no deceit in him. He was completely what he said he was, and he never lived inconsistently with that for a moment. He never put on a mask. He never pretended. He never faked it. And we know that he did that for us and for our salvation. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for living a life that we never could live, a life free of hypocrisy. Thank you for dying the death that we deserve to die under the wrath of God for our hypocrisy. We've seen in Matthew 23 this morning your great hatred for hypocrisy, but we thank you for your great love for hypocrites like us. Thank you for the grace and mercy that has pursued us in all of our hypocrisy and redeemed us. And now is your blood-bought people who belong to you, who have crucified the flesh, who are enabled by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit to bear the fruit of the Spirit, we pray that you will enable us to put off all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and to testify before the world that our Savior is not in our own reputation and how well we can defend it, that our Savior is in the reputation of Jesus Christ, that his is the reputation that we're under, not our own. Our reputation is scarred with sin and disobedience and evil. And yet Jesus has clothed us in a robe of righteousness. So we thank you for him. And we trust in him for those who are in this room this morning that are still outside of Christ, have not come to him in repentance and faith and own their sin and stop pointing fingers at others or looking at what other people are doing wrong, but have said first, you know what? I need to get right with God. Pray that this morning they would be humbled and enabled to look upon the face of Christ who is eager to save them. And that through that through that look, knowing that you oppose the proud but give grace to the humble, you would extend grace to them this morning. We ask all this for your great glory in Jesus' name. Amen.